0: are listening to the Historical Bookworm Show for lovers of history and readers of inspirational fiction. Join your hosts, Kylie and Darcy, for author interviews, a pinch of the past, and special bookworm reviews. Hi, this is Kylie Woodley and Darcy Fournier.
1: In today's episode, Kimberly Duffy joins us for a chat about the New York Circus body image, mother daughter relationships, and her latest release, The Weight of Air. On today's Pinch of the Past, we're looking at an extraordinary woman before her time Ada Lovelace. And for our Bookworm review, we have The Secrets of Emberwild by Stephanie H. McGee. Current giveaways include A Mark of Grace by Kimberly Woodhouse. And we also have a current giveaway of Wrap Your Troubles in Dreams by Jennifer Lamont Leo. Both giveaways can be accessed at historicalbookworm.com under the Giveaways tab. Kimberly Duffy has made a name for herself through her thoughtful novels that address women's issues within a historical context. With previous books set in the streets of English colonized India, Duffy now forges a new path with a gripping historical standalone that explores what it truly means to be strong, the impact of body image, and the complex relationships between mother and daughter. Kimberly Duffy, welcome to the Historical Bookworm Show.
2: Thank you for having me. It's great to be back.
0: Yes. Last year, we were interviewing you about a tapestry of light. And so I'm excited to get into this new one, which is a slightly different genre from you, for you. Well, at least a different setting. So this is going to be fun.
2: This book is actually quite different from my previous ones because all of those were one point of view, the female point of view, and this one has three point of views.
0: Oh, nice. Okay, so yeah, that that is definitely a different reading experience and definitely a different writing experience. I saw that you were traveling a little bit last year. Can you share something wonderful that you experienced on your recent trip?
2: Yeah, we, my my whole family, so my four kids and my husband and I, we were able to do some traveling this summer. We were actually supposed to travel for the entire year, but my daughter was injured, so we had to come home so she'd go to the hospital and get some treatment. But we uh, were able to spend just over a month in Albania, which is fun because not a lot of people Well, a lot of people haven't even heard of Albania. They don't know where it is on a map. But a lot of people don't visit Albania. So it was cool to have the experience of visiting a country that isn't over-touristed, like France or Italy or Portugal. We'd spend some time in Portugal, too. But while we were there, we spent a few days in a city called Barat. It was really hard to get to in the middle of the mountains, in the middle of this country. But it is one of the coolest places. I've been to some pretty cool places. It is the coolest place I have ever been. It is full of medieval churches that are like clinging to the mountain. There's a castle. It's called Brat Castle. It's been there. There's been a ca- castle on the top of this mountain since like ancient Roman times. And it's been sacked and destroyed and rebuilt. And the, the current one is from the 13th century. And you can climb up this mountain and you can walk around. Like people still work and live inside the castle walls. So you can go and have lunch at a little restaurant in the castle walls. And it's not like, um you know, if you had like... A medieval castle in France, there would be like fences and you'd have to pay to get in. Like you just walk around, you can like climb on top of the walls and you can walk right through where the prison was and you can see the entire valley and the mountains in the distance. It is the most beautiful place. It's called the City of a Thousand Windows. And so the awesome river kind of splits the city and there's, there was the Christian part of the city and the Muslim part of the city and the, the buildings are all white and they're built into the mountains and they, the facing parts of it are just covered in windows. And it's just, gorgeous it was the coolest everyone was the, so nice i swear albania has the nicest people in all of europe
0: it's we loved it
2: we loved our time
0: in albania oh that is awesome and you talking about the castles and the churches and everything i have a new country on my bucket list now too too bad black forest now i want to go to albania it
2: is so cool and it on top of all that it is like really cheap like super cheap Ah, so it's actually a more accessible trip. Yeah, it is. It is. And it's not, it's close to Italy and south of Croatia, north of Greece. So we were actually, we stayed in a city called Korcha, and we were only about an hour and a half drive from Greece.
0: Oh, interesting. Okay. So that, for those of us who are uh, a little bit illiterate about the European map, that's where it is. (laughs) Yeah, that's where it is. (laughs)
1: Helen Keller said that life is either a daring adventure or nothing at all. Now, with that in mind, if you could travel to any period of time, where in time would you go? I
2: think I would like to travel to... I think the turn of the century, United States, because so much was changing. And I feel like that's when women are really coming into their own. They're working in science and getting the right to vote and starting businesses. And that's when travel became really accessible to people, to most people. And just industry was growing and medicine and just there were so many changes happening. I think it would be a really exciting time to live and visit.
0: Yes, we were interviewing another author about the late 1800s, early 1900s, and it is such a time of change and development. And like you say, especially for women, it does seem like a really interesting time period. Yeah. And I love the fashion too. I know, right? Yes. Such a distinctive fashion. Yeah. It's towards
1: the end of the corsets and dresses just look so much more comfortable. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah,
0: right. (laughs) Now of all the stories you've written thus far, which has the research that like really pulled you in or maybe even changed your life?
2: A a Mosaic of Wings changed my life in that I went into writing that book despising everything that crawled on the ground and flew in the air. I was afraid of butterflies, like not kidding. I would take my kids to the butterfly exhibit at our like just at the zoo and they would have exhibits with butterflies and I would walk in and be batting at them because I thought they were so gross think about it they're flying worms like that's weird right but as I was researching for Mosaic I had to learn a lot about insects and I came away from that book I'm like wow they're like kind of cool like God just did a number with creating this like the diversity and just so interesting and then I was on on a trip with my agency in Charleston right after I finished writing that book and it was I don't even think I'd gotten or I just signed my contract with Bethany House for it and we were on a tea plantation and this massive bug like landed on my skirt and I was looking at it and I remember thinking like a year ago I would have literally freaked out (laughs) and now I'm just like looking at it like studying this insect crawling all over my skirt and I was like wow that's really cool so that definitely changed my life a little bit
1: yeah that's (laughs) life-changing
0: I was a bug kid when I was young, so I was the one like looking at crickets and catching the grasshoppers and things like that. I've always loved bugs. But that is cool that you got a chance to learn about it. So I'm still not a fan of spiders. There's a
2: scene where Nora kind of walks into the spider web and there's this massive orb weaver spider, I think it was. And while I was researching for that, I was like, oh my goodness, like looking at the screen through my fingers. I was so disgusted by it. (laughs) So that didn't change. I still don't like spiders. But you can appreciate the butterflies though. I can appreciate all the other insects, yes.
1: (laughs) Well, that's nice. (laughs) Now, is there anything especially interesting that you haven't covered in other interviews that you could share with us? Or perhaps there's something God has laid on your heart that you'd like to share with your reader?
2: In particular for The Weight of Air, there are certain books, I put a little bit of myself in every one of my books, right? But there are certain books that like really dig deep into like my soul. A Tapestry of Light was one because that was like my spiritual journey, my Christian walk. And this is another one. And uh, this story, like, I, I had no intention of putting so much of my story in the story when I set out to write it because I plot all my books and the only thing I don't plot is the spiritual journey because I want that to be organic to the story and I don't want it to in any way feel or seem forced. Like I want the characters to express that the way they'll express that. And so that's why there's such a difference between like Mosaic of Wings and A Tapestry Light and Every Word and Said. Tapestry is super heavy spiritual arc and the other two maybe not so much because like I... I never want my the spiritual arc to feel as though I've like strong-armed it in there. And so I didn't really plan this in the way of air, but as I was writing it, I was like why Isabella had left her family and I was thinking like at first, Isabella was not going to be a good person. She wasn't meant to be a good person. She was meant to be like a foil to Mabel. But I was writing her and I was just like, this woman has a story. What is her story? Why would she leave? Because I have four kids. Nothing could induce me to leave my children. Like it would have to be something major. And then I was writing and it just came out that she had postpartum depression and OCD. And I It just, I had postpartum depression and OCD with all of my kids. So postpartum depression with my first two, postpartum, no, postpartum OCD with my first two, postpartum depression with my my second two. And like all of the things that I struggled to reconcile and make sense of when I was in the middle of that, I gave to this character. I found it really interesting as I was researching it, like I understood even understanding what postpartum depression is. So and having the resources we do, the medications, the doctors and the understanding of it, like it was still really hard. Like, what would have been like 120 years ago before we had any of that information? Like, what was it like for these women? And so I had, right after I'd finished writing the draft and it was sent to my editor, I did a reader event and I was on a panel with about 10 other authors. And the question was asked, it was actually through Baker Bookhouse. So Chris asked the question, like, what do you want to see? What what situation, what experience do you want to see written about in Christian fiction? And a woman raised her hand, a very first person answer, said, I want to see... Somebody write about postpartum depression, and then they were like, "Yes, me too." Like the entire audience was like, "Yes, we want to see that." And it's it's such a common experience, but it's not really talked about. So people don't want to hear this is like the most beautiful moment of your life. People don't want to hear I'm really struggling with this. Nobody wants to talk about that. And I thought it was really interesting because I wasn't sure how that would be received. And then I realized so many women struggle with this or have are struggling with it right now, and it's nice to feel heard and seen.
0: Yes. That's amazing how God worked that out, that he puts you on the panel when someone was going to say, yes, that's what I want to read, you know?
2: Yeah. It was cathartic, too, writing about it, because I had a lot of unresolved guilt. And it it wasn't rational guilt. Like, I could ferret that out in my head. Like, this isn't rational, feel guilty about this. I had no control over it. But you still feel really
0: guilty about those moments. Yeah, because like you said, it's expected to be the most beautiful thing. And I've never had a child, but I know when I see people have children, I'm happy for them. I'm excited. I want to celebrate with them. And so I would imagine that to be the mom on the other end that you're like, why do I not feel as happy as I think I should? That would be really hard.
1: Yeah. Yes. It's like the fairy tale idea that we have for romance and that happily ever after that is unrealistic. (laughs) When it comes to real life, I think we can also very easily have that about motherhood. And then it hits and you go through labor and recovery and lack of sleep and all these changes. And it is so, so so hard and so exhausting and it doesn't feel anything like what we've seen in movies and a lot of times even heard about from other women. But it all works out in the end. I think I understand like that guilt for feeling all the stress and the weariness and the lack of happiness. My first child had a colic (laughs) and I was extremely sleep deprived. And I have moments in time like that are just lost. Mm -hmm. They're just blank. There's people like, do you remember we did this when she was born or two months after she was born? And I was like, I have no recollection of that. And So it's hard. It's definitely something that needs to be talked about. And I'm glad that you're sharing that through this story.
2: Well, I think our culture has changed so much in regards to how much support we offer new mothers. So whereas 100, 200, 300 years ago, the community would come and spoil them and you'd be sitting in bed for weeks and you wouldn't have to worry about like taking care of your other kids and cleaning your house and cooking and your job was basically just to lay in bed with that baby and rest and nurse that baby. And so now it's like you have to get up right away and start taking care of things and it just doesn't happen like that. People don't come around new mothers like that and I think we underestimate how much impact exhaustion will have on you when
0: you had a baby. It's just so, so exhausting.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Ah, that is the fun of exploring, well, and the benefit of exploring things through the lens of history. You get a chance to compare and learn some things. So let's go ahead and dive into talking about your latest release, which we've already been doing in a little more detail, The Weight of Air. Two women, bound by blood, torn apart by circumstance, find together that true strength comes in many forms. In 1911, Mabel McGinnis is Europe's strongest woman and has performed beside her father in the Monzo Brothers Circus her entire life. When he dies unexpectedly, she loses everything she's ever known and sets off in the company of acrobat Jake Cunningham in hope of finding the mother she thought was dead. Isabella Moreau, America's most fated aerialist, has given everything to the circus. But age and injury now threaten her security, and Isabella, stalked by old fears, makes a choice that risks everything. Then her daughter Mabel appears alongside the man who never wanted to see Isabella again, and she is forced to face the truth of where and in what she derives her worth As Mabel and Isabella's lives become entangled beneath the glittering lights and flying trapeze of Madison Square Garden, their resiliency and resolve are tested as they learn the truth of what it means to be strong.
1: So I love the setting of the circus and also the mystery behind the mother and daughter being separated. So what led you to choose the setting for the circus in New York?
2: While I was researching, I learned that Barnum & Bailey Circus kicked off their season with a month at Madison Square Garden every year. So originally I would planned on having them been traveling around the country or whatever. And then I learned this, and so I'm from New York. My grandmother was born there to an immigrant family from Sicily. She was born in 1917. She, was, she had my dad when she was much older. But they lived in Little Italy in a tenement building. And there are a few scenes in Little Italy, some in Coney Island. And it just felt like a really nice tribute to my family history. I also really liked returning to New York again. I had some, about half the book of Mosaic of Wings was set in Ithaca, New York, which is upstate. But I'm from Long Island, so I was fairly close to New York City. And it just seemed like a fun way to return to my roots, honor my family, honor my grandmother. And it was fun to imagine that like perhaps like my grandmother would have gone to see the circus when she was a little girl and have met Mabel or I don't know. It was just fun to set those scenes there.
0: Oh wow, that is so cool. Can you tell us more about the characters of Mabel and Isabella?
2: Yeah. So I I think they're my favorite characters I've ever written. I love the two of them together. I love them individually, but together there's just a really interesting dichotomy between them. Mabel has been raised in the circus her whole life. She started by working with her mother as an aerialist, but she grew too big too fast. So she's about six foot tall in the book and aerialists typically were much smaller. So she starts studying beneath her father as a strong woman and she and he, they have like a strong person act and they work together in the circus And there. They do really well for themselves in this small kind of European circus that travels around. Her father dies off the page. So he dies before the book starts. I have a friend who writes Regency romance and she's, can you please not let anyone die in this book? No cholera, no typhoid, please, Kim. I'm like, well, someone dies, but it's before the book starts. Is that okay? And she's like, yes, that's okay. Yeah. She's like, I guess if it's necessary, <laughs> it is necessary that he's dead. <laughs> so <laughs> he dies and she finds that she is unable to perform without him. So she's been working with him since she was a little girl, like four or five years old. And she has a severe case of stage fright. It cropped up when she was a child, when her mother left. And it just, when her father leaves through death, it just becomes overwhelming. And she just Freezes up like she cannot work. She cannot do her act. Her life experiences have been curated by growing up in this small moving family. So even after her death, after her father's death, him and his friends attempt to protect her from the truth, and she feels as though everyone believes that she's too weak to handle it. So physically she's extremely strong, but she feels as though they believe that she's too fragile emotionally to handle the truth of what what's going on. On the other hand, Isabella has faced. Demons. And she's an island unto herself. She's fiercely independent. She doesn't rely on anyone. She's learned that people can't be trusted. And she's in this period of life, like she's nearly 50, she's aging. And her body is broken you know she's abusive for so many years with this like highly intensely physical job and she isn't able to do the things she used to be able to do and that's really hard for her She's sacrificed her entire life she sacrificed everything for her career and she just finds that her body is failing it and she feels as though it's failing her so while Mabel is learning to stand on her own two feet and trust in herself Isabella's discovering that she needs to accept the help of others more important she needs to learn that she was never meant to face life alone so having these two women rediscover each other and redeem their relationship, all while dealing with these kind of external issues, like in contrast to one another, was really fun to explore and write.
0: And what a great way using both of them to explore what a whole picture of being a strong person is, not weighted towards one way or the other. That's, that sounds really neat. It was fun to write for sure.
1: And Mabel makes her living by being the strongest woman in Europe. This is a unique pursuit for a woman at that time in particular. So how do Mabel's struggles with body image and society's perception of her translate to the challenges modern women face today?
2: So I don't, I say this with every book, every time I do an interview, I don't think human nature has changed much. So the same things that women want and struggle with today are the same things that women wanted and struggled with 100 years ago or 500 years ago, right? And all throughout history, our bodies have been objectified. And there's always been possible standards on what they should look like. So the specifics kind of change. Like we were just talking about turn of the century fashion, like we no longer, we no longer Want women to look at like, have this like kind of S-shaped curve. We don't corset women tightly. The twenties it was like the flat chest and kind of boyish figure. Like those specifics change, but the underlying expectations that we conform to this ideal that doesn't change. That's been like steady throughout history. So Mabel struggles because her entire life she's been pointed at and othered by people. She's a circus performer and she loves her work. She does not like the feeling as though she's underneath a microscope all the time. She doesn't like that. She's six foot tall. So at the time, this is set in 1911, the average man was only five foot eight. So even today, like my oldest daughter is five foot nine. And people constantly, every time we go out, wow, you're really tall. She's like, I know. And they're always asking, her, like, do you play basketball? And she's like, no, I really don't. You don't want me anywhere near a sport. And she's only five nine. And it's 2022 where people tend to be taller. So this is 1911 where People were much smaller and she's six foot tall. She's very strong. She's very muscular. She can quite literally beat any man in a wrestling competition. And so the papers like hold her up as this paragon of female strength. And I have this scene in the book where she's measured by all these doctors. And this scene is take it's lifted from history. Mabel's inspired by Katie Sanduina, who was a real circus strong woman, turn of the century, early 20th century. And they actually did this to her. They measured her parts and then said, She is the perfect, she is the perfect body. And it's very fetishizing of these women's bodies and dehumanizing. And so she's held up as this paragon of beauty and strength. But she, what they do is because they're only focusing on this one part of her, she becomes this one-dimensional product instead of a human being, spirit, mind, and body. And I really don't think it's any different now. When I was growing up, I was inundated by this like heroin chic image. This is beauty. I grew up in the 90s. Like I was a teenager in the 90s. And I'm not built like that. <laughs> but I'm like 5'7", five, 5'6". But I'm I tell everyone all the time. I'm built like a turn of the century like Hungarian potato farmer. <laughs> like I'm very solid and very muscular naturally. If I work out they always say if you work out, you won't look like a man. Like I, I would look like a man. <laughs> like I have really thick muscles and I put on the muscle quickly and easily. So if I'm working out, I tend not to work out my legs because they just look super muscular and they get really big. So that was not, like, going to be my world. Like, I was not going to look like Kate Moss. I would never attain that. Try to attain that. I ended up developing an eating disorder, trying to attain that. But because I thought, because all I saw were these images of these beautiful women who looked nothing like I would look. Like that became what I thought was the most important part of me because society was saying, this is the most important part of them. So that's like, this must be the most important part of me. And I'm not going to be able to attain that. Therefore, I'm failing. I'm not going to measure up ever. You know, we have today, we have these less size models, which I think is wonderful. Like I want my girls to see people represented in media and in fashion that um, have kind of attainable body sizes and shapes. But still, at the end of the day, we're still looking at these like women as these one-dimensional products. And so we're still like looking at these women as not human beings. They're just bodies. And they're body parts even. Like you go on Instagram and like even last year people were talking about hip dips and how to get rid of hip dips. And I'm just sitting there what on earth are hip dips? I didn't realize I should be self-conscious about my hip dips. I didn't know that was a thing. So it's not even just bodies as a whole. It's like parts of pieces of bodies. So we like, we kind of see this pattern throughout histi- history where it doesn't matter like what the specifics are, but because at the end of the day, women's bodies are still being objectified. And so writing this, I I feel as though Mabel's relatable to women today, even though this book is set over a hundred years ago, I feel like women today can relate to this. And I I have two teenage daughters. I have a 17, almost 18 year old and an almost 16 year old. And it's hard. Like every time they turn on social media or they go outside or they, they turn on a movie or watch TV, like women, even teenagers, are like sexualized and talk show hosts or magazines explore like so-and-so gained 20 pounds or how did
0: what surgery do they get to look like this and it's just too much it's too much it needs to stop I don't know that it ever will though it's interesting to look back at history we think we have such a problem with it now and maybe it's more in our face now at least for our kids but maybe it's not when you think about the fact that we've they had magazines back then too and things like that and that's one thing I love about historical fiction is how it reminds us that people are people throughout the centuries uh, I was reading a I re- I'm I love history so I read a lot
2: of just historical biographies and just books in general and this was years ago I was like 15 it was before I I think I only had one kid at this point so it was like 17 years ago I was reading about a, an English king I cannot remember <laughs> which one but it was sometime like 1600s maybe yeah I think late 1600s and they were talking about how he loved ugly women. And so one one of his mistresses had fallen off a horse and everyone had seen her legs and they were like really skinny. And she was like, they just made cartoons about her and made fun of her. And I mean, this has been going on for hundreds of years. It's awful.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, then it definitely needs to be addressed in fiction.
2: I think so. That's why I did it.
0: <laughs> well, what are you working on next?
2: My family, I was talking about how we were traveling And we had a chaotic, traumatic experience trying to get back home and dealing with the Greek hospital system and my daughter being injured. So I was at the time I was working on a historical novel that kind of required me to be traveling for research and stuff. And so when we got back home, I was talking to my agent. I was like, I just can't write this right now. I am too stressed out and I need a break. And she's like, why don't you write something completely different? I was like, okay, that sounds good. So I'm actually currently working on a contemporary romance, which is not something I've written. My second novel I ever wrote was a contemporary romance. So that was, oh my gosh, 16 years ago, not published. I didn't get published on my fourth novel, but I'm kind of going back to that. And it's very light And it's a simple, sweet story. It's set in England. It's a lot of fun. It's been fun to write. The characters are completely different than what I normally write. It's not really layered. (laughs) Like it's not, it doesn't have this like complex, like thematic sort of underpinnings. And it's been really good for me. So I'm about halfway through that. And if I, if I can't find a publisher for that, I'll definitely self-publish it at some point in the next year or so. And then when I'm done with this one, I do plan on going back to that historical and going back to what I love most to do. But yeah, right now I'm working on contemporary romance. That is fun. It is fun. It's been good.
1: So for our listeners, Kimberly is offering a copy of The Weight of Air. To enter to win, just check out our website, historicalbookworm.com. And you can click on the giveaways tab. We also have a link to the giveaway, which will be in the show notes for this episode.
0: Well, where can our listeners learn more about you and connect with you? I'm super active on
2: Instagram, not so much on Facebook, but I am on Instagram, so it's author Kimberly Duffy, and then I have a website, www.kimberlyduffy.com.
0: Now for a pinch of the past.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Kimberly Woodhouse, and I'm an author who started walking and riding my way toward my deadlines to get myself moving, and I might be just a little bit obsessed with the Conqueror virtual challenges, just saying. But I've started something new, and it's called A Million Miles with Kim. The mission is to form a community on a journey to health. We all know that this journey is lifelong, and it can't be accomplished overnight. When one of us falls down in the mud puddle, we want to be there to help each other up. The goal? To make it to a million miles together. I hope you join me, A Million Miles with kim.com So on today's Pinch of the Past, we are looking at an extraordinary woman who was just before her time. Ada Lovelace is considered the first computer programmer. As she was the daughter of Lord Byron and the most wealthy woman of the 1800s. And I have never heard of her. What? I know that's crazy.
0: Well, tell me about her.
1: Absolutely. So her full name is Augusta Ada King. She's the Countess of Lovelace. And she was born in England on December tenth, in eighteen fifteen. She was the daughter of the famous poet Lord George Byron and his wife, Lady Anne Byron. She was Byron's only legitimate child, and he left her and her mother just weeks after she was born. He she, he actually commemorated this parting. In his poem titled "Child Herald's Pilgrimage," and it says, "In thy face, like thy mother's, my fair child, Ada, sole daughter of my house and heart."
0: Interesting.
1: Yeah. So, he—if you know anything about Lord Byron—he was a busy, colorful fellow. But he actually passed away when she was only nine years old. She had really no relationship with him, and in an effort to keep. Ada from developing Lord Byron's perceived insanity and possibly out of spite. Lady Byron encouraged Ada's interest in mathematics and logic and science, not so much in poetry. However, Ada really pursued those on her own, even though she was a sickly child. Uh, As for her adulthood, she was mentored by Charles Babbage, who is known as the father of computers. He invented the difference engine, which is an early version of the calculator.
0: Oh, that is so fascinating. So her mom was like, she can study anything but poetry, but apparently showed an aptitude for it. And so she got started in that field of mathematics.
1: Yes, yes. And she just basically seems like a genius. She had an aptitude for like everything.
0: <laughs> what are those people?
1: Yeah. So even after marrying William King, the Earl of Lovelace, and having three children, Ada continued her work with Babbage. He asked her to interpret his instructions for the analytical engine into French. And Ada did so adding her own additional notes and signing them A-A-L. But she understood the machine worked with letters and codes, not just as a calculator using numbers, but also letters, which is basically computer programming. Her notes would later be used by Alan Turing, who invented the first modern computer in the 1940s.
0: Wow. That's just interesting because all science builds On someone else's work before them, and so it's cool that the first modern computer in the 1940s traces all the way back to Ada Lovelace. That's cool.
1: Yeah, and her work with Charles Babbage was in the 1840s. So, like a whole hundred years, a hundred years. Yeah. So, as for like accomplishments and awards, in 1979, the U.S. Department of Defense named Ada which was a programming language. In her honor, she was a uniquely talented person. Ada often used metaphors to describe scientific theories, and she also used her unique talents as a poet to interpret and create a pattern-based language for mathematical insights. When describing the analytical machine, she said it weaves algebraic patterns just as the Jacobard loom weaves flowers and leaves.
0: That is so cool. It's, she was an artist as well, which actually makes a lot of sense because most programmers these days are creative in some way or another. You kind of have to be in order to write computer programs. So that's neat that she exhibited both sides, that mathematic quality, and yet she's practically describing it as poetry.
1: Yeah, she really just seems like a fascinating lady. She only lived to be 37. She suffered from asthma and digestive problems. Like many people at that time, she used opium-based painkillers, and unfortunately, she developed an addiction to them. It's unknown if she was ever in remission. She died of uterine cancer in London in the year 1852. So no matter how short her life, Ada is an example of a woman who used every opportunity, advantage, and talent to pursue what she loved. Even though she suffered with health problems throughout her life, she contributed to the advancement of our society's technology. Just pretty amazing.
0: Time for our bookworm review.
1: The Secrets of Ember Wild by Stefina H. McGee A gifted trainer in a time women are not allowed to race, Nora Fenton prefers horses to men. They're easier to handle, they're more reliable, and they never tell her what to do. After her father's passing, Nora is determined to save her struggling horse farm, starting with entering her prize colt into the harness races at the 1905 Mississippi Fair. If she wins, she may have a chance at independence. But when a stranger arrives and starts asking disconcerting questions, she suspects he may have other motives than unseating her in the training job that is rightfully hers. Silas Calavero will do whatever it takes to solve the mystery of his father's death, even if it means training an unwieldy colt for Nora who wants nothing more than to see him gone. But when mysterious accidents threaten their safety and circumstances shrouded in secrets begin unlocking clues to his past, Silas will have to decide if the truth is worth risking ruining everything for the feisty woman he's come to admire.
0: This review is by Christy K. Rebel women in historical times are hardly anything new in the fiction world, so it's refreshing when the rebellious character in question is Nora Fenton. There are plenty of times when her confidence wavers and she gets trampled on by the men who are tasked with planning her life, yet she forges ahead with the desires of her heart to save Emberwild and its horses, especially Arrow. When the search for answers in his father's death leads Silas to Emberwild, he encounters more than simply training a tempestuous trotter. He meets Nora, who is determined to help train Arrow for racing so Emberwild can once again be a profitable endeavor. Accidents happen and suspicions rise in the midst of family turmoil and unearthed secrets. With so many decisions hanging in the balance, the story mixes intrigue with romance, resulting in a page-turner until the very end. If you're in the mood for a combustible combination of danger, romance, strong characters, willful horses, and family drama, The Secrets of Amber Wild* is a must-read. You've been listening to The Historical Bookworm Show, where history meets fiction. For more information, find us at historicalbookworm.com.